begun over the last few weeks uh, in, the sermon, in the sermon slot looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a, a bunch of believers in Rome, the letter to the Romans. And uh, I think what Paul is doing in that letter is trying to enable Christians who were living in a massive capital city, overwhelming at times with its power, and Paul was trying to speak to these young Christians to try and do the work whereby they might understand the brilliance of the gospel. They'd all become Christians, but what Paul is wanting to do all the time is saying, do you realize how brilliant it is? Do you realize how deep it is? Do you realize how it's bigger than you think? It's not just like coming to church on Sunday. It's not just like, yeah, I think God loves me. It's actually, there's a depth to this that is worthwhile exploring. I think the other interesting thing that Paul's trying to do there is he's not only trying to get people like me and you who might believe in Jesus and and worship him, but sometimes forget the depth of it all. What he's also trying to do is he's giving us an example of how do you unpack this good news with people? And last week particularly, we began to look at what Paul is doing in the first chapter. And in the first chapter, if you were with us last week, you'll remember what Paul is saying is, we're in a mess. We're actually just in a mess. And it seems there's no way out. And we talked about that for a while. I've got a friend um, called Keith. Um, And uh, he was telling me a story. Keith's about my age. Um, mid-thirties, um, and um, he's, got, he's got a little gang of friends, uh, there's five of them, and once a year they go on a Jolly Boys uh, outing for a weekend somewhere. So they go for a, a weekend, uh, they've, been, they've done Scarborough and Bridlington, they, they, they've got ambitions. And, um, and this, this, out of that group of five, they've known each other a long time, out of the group of five, three of them are not, don't believe in Jesus at all, and two of them do. But this year... Um, one of his mates let on that actually he had an apartment in Madeira and he said, why don't we go to Madeira? Suddenly Scarborough didn't seem that much of a deal. So they said, yeah, let's go to Madeira. So this guy who owned the apartment uh, sort of led them, took them to Madeira for the weekend. And uh, on the first evening, uh, they were sitting around, uh, just having arrived in the apartment and they're sitting having a meal and in the middle of just general banter and conversation, the bloke who owns the apartment said, Hey, Keith. He said, uh, this religion lark. He said, uh, my secretary at work, she's into that sort of stuff that you're into. He said, so I asked her this week. He said, I said to her, he said, I'm a decent bloke. I do good things. I try and live right. Will God let me in to heaven at the end? And Keith said, uh, He said, what did the secretary say? Now, I think the secretary's response might have something to do with that he's the managing director and she's the secretary. (laughs) Okay. I think you've got to bear that in mind when I get to this next bit because the secretary said, yeah, I think probably God will let you in on that basis. This bloke said, what do you think, Keith? Now, Keith's from Bolton. (laughs) And in ways that only Bolton people can do, he went... No! (laughs) Not at all! And they began a long conversation that went on for about 90 minutes until it all sort of arranged the sand a little bit. 
I said to Keith, I said, that was quite a brave thing to say to him. He said, yeah, well, we were already in his apartment. He couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> and I was thinking about the conversation that Keith had had with his friend. His friend who was essentially asking the question, am I good enough? And I think there's some things that that friend's got right, actually. The bloke who's asking, I'm, I'm a good bloke. I'm, I'm trying my best. Is that good enough for God? Will that get me to him? I think there's some things that bloke's got right. I think the things that he's got right is he realizes that God's the issue. I think the bloke's right on that. I think he realizes that actually, ultimately, there's God to, to deal with. I think he's right because he's, he's recognizing there's a life to come. It's not all just about down here. And we would want to say, I think he's right about that. And I think the other thing that he's right about is that actions count. They're not just for nothing. But I think he's wrong about other things. I think he's wrong because I think he thinks that God just kicks in at the end. That it's that sort of, you know, and you'll have, you'll have been asked questions that are similar to that sort of question. You know, how do you, what about the, you know, the heaven question? And actually it's the idea of down here we'll just do the best we can until there and then we've got to come up with something really good. As though it only kicks in at the end. I think he's wrong because he thinks that God's really quite impressed with our best actions and that somehow God's keeping tally. But I think ultimately why the wrong, guy's wrong is because he thinks he can rely on his own goodness to get by. Self-reliance. Now what he was demonstrating was literally a form of self-righteousness. What that bloke's asking over the table is, when I get to heaven, will I be right enough to get in? And will all the stuff I've tried to do right, will that be the basis on which I get the ticket in? And what the fellow's trying to suggest is, you've got to do it on self-righteousness. That makes sense. It's what I'm trying to do. It's all very subtle, isn't it? Because I think self-righteousness lies behind a lot of the other stuff that we find ourselves slipping into so easily. It's what happens when we find that we're judging other people. It's like we've got perfect vision. We've, we're, we're right, and it's, it's everybody else that's wrong. I'm right. It's them that's wrong. I was on a bus on Tuesday night with uh, a fellow from Boston uh, in the States who'd come over to work with me for a week and uh, we were on a London bus at, at tea time crowded out and there's me and, and Chris sitting and he's, Chris is on the aisle seat and uh, we'd not been on the bus more than 10 minutes and uh, an old lady came on with a, a you know one of those like uh, yeah that's it um, <laughs> one of those big square ones and it was, it was, it was packed it's metal, it's packed and anyway <laughs> we could go on along, but <laughs> the shopping trolley is actually incidental to the whole story. I've got to tell you, Pat. <laughs> it wasn't tartar. No, stop. <laughs> but you've got the picture. She gets on the bus, and from where you, you, you tap in your card to get the ticket, she points to Chris and says, Oh, you. Will you move? I want to sit there. And this guy from Boston looks at me. I, I, you better move. Um, she's pointing at you, not me. And um, so she, she comes and 
and he stands up with all his cases and, uh, and she sits down. And uh, anyway, it's clear that she's quite frail and uh, perhaps struggling a little bit with life and all the rest of it. And essentially, she's talking to herself. All right. Now, because we're British, we all look the other way. <laughs> she's just rambling along. All right. All sorts of things. So as we're getting towards where our stop is, uh, I say to her, I'm going to have to get off at this next stop to give her time to, to let me out. So she didn't move. So I had to climb, literally climb over her. And Chris starts to laugh at me. <laughs> and the woman says, back to Chris, what are you laughing at? I'm not posh like you. What are you laughing at? Anyway, we got off the bus. And I explained to Chris that that was the British Tourist Board welcoming Americans into the country post-Olympics. And, uh, and I thought about her a bit as we were walking back to where we were staying. I'm not posh like you. Because what she'd seen were two middle-aged men with bags. And I don't know what's gone on for her, but it's like, I know exactly who you are. You're posh. Didn't know us from, literally from Adam. But that moment, it kicks in. Perfect vision. We do it all the time, don't we? I'm in the right. I can see through you. I know what you're thinking. And I'm right. We never stop to ask. We never stop to wonder. I'm not posh like you. It's almost like we know the exact motivation for why someone's doing something and we've judged them for it. I think it kicks in, this self-righteousness kicks in around perfectionism. People are never good enough. But the truth is, you never feel good enough yourself either. Trying to do it, I'm right. And woe betide anybody who tells me I'm not. Well, Paul writes a letter to people like us in situations that are not massively dissimilar. And in the church in Rome, there was one group of people who were Jewish background, and they'd become followers of Jesus. And then there's another group of people who were not Jewish background. They're just like, they're people who had all sorts of religion or no religion. But there's Jewish people and non-Jewish people. The Jewish people, they had a hard time in Rome. Because in Rome, they didn't worship the other gods, they didn't go to the temples, they didn't eat certain foods. They would be very careful about the foods they buy at the market because they might have been offered to gods. And the men would be circumcised. And in Rome, that wasn't really a private affair because when you went to the baths or the saunas, everybody would know you're different. You stand out. It's obvious. You're not one of us. And for Jewish people, it was hard. And what Paul begins to say to them is, the problem is, you're beginning to rely on your own being differentness rather than anything else. You think that effectively, God's going to say you're in because you're relying on your own righteousness. If you were with me last week, do you remember when I got to the end of that chapter one where he says that all people have all turned to their own ways, they're God-haters, they're slanderers, they're insolent, they're all the rest of it. 
and, and how easy it is to hear of that. Well, I'm not like that. Well, this is what Paul is wanting to deal with now. Paul wants to point his finger now at another group of people and go, be careful that you're not looking down on everybody else because actually you've got a problem too. To people who had 2020 vision, they thought they had 2020 vision, to those people who've tuttered at the end of chapter one, he begins to try and puncture their own feeling of being safe. So if you've got a Bible now, I'm going to read it now. It's chapter two of Romans, and it's the first part. We're going to cover quite a, 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 a sort of a, a bit of this, so I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read bits of the next couple of chapters. And he begins his second chapter like this, Romans chapter two. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for, what, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay everyone according to what they've done. To those who... By persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. He'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. If you can just drop down to verse 17 now. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what's superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now what Paul's doing is, at that point, he's doing the thing that we often talk about. Um, it's like that thing, if you point the finger, it's like that old thing, you know, you know what I'm going to say next. If you point the finger, you've got three coming back at you. And that's what Paul's doing at this point. Paul is saying, you've been given the law and you can see it really clearly in other people when other people are at fault. But do you not see that too often what happens is you're not as good as you would want to be. You're not as good as your own standards for other people are. Effectively, he's writing to a group of people who say, we have really high standards. And Paul says, but you keep breaking them, don't you? You're not as consistent as you'd want to be. None of us are. And in fact, sometimes 
some of us find ourselves pointing out the very errors in other people that are the very things that we struggle with the most. And sometimes we can point them out really easily because we recognize them really simply. And Paul's going, that's what's going on here. Now, you've got to remember, these people think they're doing fine. And Paul's going, you're not. Because you keep being the people who point the finger all the time. So in chapter 3, he's looking, because he's kind of like answering questions that people would want to ask at that point. And one of the questions is, well, why bother being a Jew? (laughs) It's like we've been given this law by God. We we didn't choose to be Jewish. You you become Jewish because it's the family you were born into. What's the point of it? And in verse 25 of chapter 2, sorry, I know I'm going back. In, In verse 25, he says, circumcision does have value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you become as though who had not been circumcised. It's like, if you were perfect, then circumcision would be fine, but... It's not. And then in chapter 3 he begins, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true in every man alive. And then he goes on. And what he's doing at this point, and this is the question he's going to come back to in Romans. We don't need to solve that this morning. What he's going to come back to all the time. Well, what's God been playing at when God has got these Jewish people? This is going to be a big deal for Paul. He's going to keep on coming back and trying to engage with that question. And by the way, that is not a theoretical question for us in Salford. Because two miles up the road is one of the biggest communities of Jewish people in the UK. What's God doing with those folks? What Paul's wanting to do, and if you look at chapter 3, you just follow it through, from verse 10 onwards, you'll see that in most Bibles, they're sort of like, it's like, um, like in poetry form. And what he's done is he's collected a lot of sort of little verses from Psalms, and he's put them together, but essentially he's put them together to say this. Verse 10, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have become together worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they don't know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You don't see those stuff on freak magnets, do you? <laughs> eh? Or on little posters with kittens. What's he doing? He's wanting to push and go, are any of you sitting there going, no, absolutely, we are right. I see it really clearly. And everybody else is wrong. And Paul wants to get to the point where he goes, you who feel most confident in being right, you need to know you're wrong. And I don't understand that encouraging, does it? Except for this. Where he's going to take all of this is in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned. This is the verse where he's getting you to. All have sinned 
and falling short of the glory of God. Now, for some people, that begins like, well, that's for real sinners. That's for scumbag sinners. That's for people who've really done wrong. But us, we're kind of like decent people. And, and it's, it's, it, we, we, God just loves us because we are lovable. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. Can you see that even those of you who feel you're most right, the ones who point the finger most easily, you're the ones who need the gospel most. Jesus had that same problem. Jesus, do you remember? He, he's, he looks around, he goes, and he says, the people I've come for are the sick. He said, because healthy people don't need a doctor. The people who Jesus went to and the people who were drawn to Jesus who went, I'm sick. I'm, I'm, I'm not who I would want to be. I'm not what I'm created to be. I foul up too much. Paul wants to say, none of us are exempt. And I want to say this gently, but I, I think it's true. If last week's sermon, where we looked at the mess the world is in, it was easy to put on the television and go, yeah, you can see it there, can't you? You can see those people do that, you can see that. This is a sermon for people who sit in church. Without being too forceful, this is a sermon for me and you, not for them. It's only when we realize our problems, our sin, that we'll seek out the remedy. Last bit. So, what's the solution? <laughs> it's important you don't stop a sermon at this point, otherwise you're all going to commit suicide. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance or his patience, he... Um, He'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, some of you will have been following that in your Bible, but you've switched off because you think, I don't understand what it's on about. So I just want to do this thing where he uses five big words. And these are crucial five big words on which our faith is built. The first crucial word is righteousness. Now, righteousness is not, a, is not a word we use every day by any means, but being right, that first part of the word is. And he says there's a righteousness from God that has been revealed. Now, when he's talking about that, he's using it in all sorts of ways, but one of the ways he's saying is God is right. That's the first thing. God's righteous. God's holy. God does not foul up. We do, and that's the problem. So how can 
God's righteousness deal with our unrighteousness. And what he's going to do, and through, we're going to come back to this, God, Paul says, God's done something really quite remarkable. It's not that God, who's all this holy God, has gone, oh, I forgive you. But God has actually done far more than that. He's actually made us righteous. A righteousness from God has been revealed. How do you restore a relationship? You bring them together. And there's a way of being in the right apart from the law. It's not about just obeying laws. How can you be right with God when you know you don't keep the rules? That's what he's dealing with. How can you be right with God when you know you're not as good as you would want to be? How can you be right with God when you let yourself down and you let other people down? How can you be right with God when you're still tempted to point the finger too often? Well, God's done something. It's not you saying, okay, I'll try not to judge anymore. It's not you saying, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Because that's just you trying harder. He's saying, God's done something. And the first thing he says is, God has justified you through the cross. And again, justified is not a language that we would use. But again, it's that first part of the word, just. He's made you He's done an action that's, that's been just, right. It's that word judgment, sort of the justice word. And it is language from a court. And to be justified is when Jesus says, I offer you my forgiveness. But it's more than just being forgiven. It's actually that new status. Have you seen court cases where someone's been pardoned, when they've had this sort of weight hanging over them, and then the judges said, there's no case, it's like, you're, you're, you know, you're free to go, pardoned. And sometimes, I, and the people I'm thinking of are the sort of the, the Birmingham Six, the sort of the, the IRA, you know, in that, that time when people were un, falsely pr- imprisoned. And they came out and said, I'm a free man. That's the language behind this. I'm a free man. I'm a free woman. I've been forgiven and I'm free. God's done that for you. It's court language. And then he uses a second big word, which is redemption. And the language of redemption, when Paul is using it, is slave market language. Where people who have been sold into slavery, and in Romans time, what you could do is if you were, if you bankrupt, you could sell yourself into slavery. You say, I've got nothing left, so I'll sell myself. uh, This still happens, by the way. This still happens. You lose everything, what do you do? You sell yourself. And Paul uses that language to go, Jesus goes to the slave market and goes, I'll buy you back. I'll redeem you. It's redemption. It's buyback. Fourth word, big word, atonement. They knew about this. Because they said, when gods are angry, we've got to go to the temple and we've got to take sacrifices. But Paul says, no, 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 no. This time, what happened is, when we've broken all our relationship with God, Jesus was the perfect atonement. God took his own son and said, I'll pay the price. And the fifth big word is grace. And grace simply means that you get far more than you ever deserve. 
Now behind it is these big, big concepts. And it's not theology that's up there in the sky. What Paul is wanting these Romans to find is a different way of dealing with work and family and home and their own feelings. He's wanting them to understand how do you share this good news with your neighbour in Rome when you're living next door. And the first thing, and the only way it will work, is actually you know that with God you're different. It's not, oh, I'm really trying hard to be a good Christian. It's actually, I know I mess up far off more often than I get it right. However, God has done something. God is just, and his justice is dealt with through Jesus on the cross, who took the punishment that should have been mine. Very last slide. How do you get in on this? All the time, Paul is saying it's through faith. This week I was uh, listening to somebody speak. And they were talking about spirituality and they were talking about all sorts of things really. And the thought that went through my mind is, I think you'd really like Jesus. I think you'd really like him. If you knew him, I think you'd really like him. Because the person who was speaking was looking for something else. And I'm thinking, if I could, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus. Because I think Jesus would make sense of all this for you. The stuff you're yearning for, the stuff you're longing for. And actually, I think you'd like him. I know that sounds a bit soft. But I think lots of people would actually like Jesus. And they would love the good news that being right is not just trying harder but it's accepting what's happened. I've got this picture that um, it's like Jesus stands by the door for some of you old Christians you know illustrations of doors but it's almost like Jesus is standing next to a door and he's, he's coming to people and going would you, would you come in through this door? I'll take you through the door. Trust me to take you through this door and when you get through this door, you will find a world that you never dreamt of. But trust me to get you through the door. Just trust me. And it's like Jesus almost beckoning to people and going, will you come through the door? Because this world, the other side of the door, is different than you expect. But trust me, I'll take you. I'll, I'll not leave you. I'll be your guide. And it's through faith in Jesus, Paul says, that this becomes reality for you. Well... That's all fairly big stuff. So how do you make it your own? Two things, at least two things. For those of us who recognize ourselves as the people who are so tempted so often to be in the right and to be always trying to protect our own self-righteousness, Paul says, will you please let it go? Because you know the inner turmoil when you keep pointing the finger and you keep seeing those three, three fingers pointing back. Just let it go. Will you trust what God has done in Christ? For those who, and there's loads of us, and it was like years ago, we might have said, yeah, I trust Jesus. I'm going to go with it with Jesus. And it's like being really... 
what happens is it's really easy to start off going, well, that's brilliant what Jesus has done, and then you end up just trying harder in your own strength. And all the time it's coming back to, God's done this for us. He's actually taken action for us. And the other thing he does is he speaks to people like Keith's mate, people like your friends, who go, well, I'm a decent person. Am I going to be okay? And Paul says, you don't need to rely on it because, to be honest, it's not as strong as you think, is it? So trust Jesus instead. And Jesus stands at the door going, I'll lead you through into this world. For some of you this morning, this may be a morning where you go, I'm going to do that. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm in a bit of a mess, a mess of my own making. Outwardly, I look fine. Inwardly, it's turmoil. I'm going to go back and trust this Jesus who stands by the door and says, let me take you into this new world. And the invitation is always there. And in a moment, Mary will come and Hannah will come and they'll lead us into a time of communion. And for us, communion is a time when you can actually say, I'm going to I'm going to take that step. I want to take that step. I want Jesus to be mine. For some of you, you would find it really helpful if someone would pray with you. And so around communion time, there's spaces at the front of these expensive seats in the front of the church that are remarkably empty at the moment, where you can just come and sit and someone will come and pray with you. And it's yours. Paul wrote to a people we're sitting in church and he says I've got some really good news for you I've got some really good news for you should we pray together and perhaps musicians want to make their way back and they can be ready Father God, we want to be people who feel the liberation of being honest, of not having to pretend, of not having to uh, just try harder or just beat ourselves up. <laughs> Those twin things that so often we find ourselves doing, either beating ourselves up for the mistakes we've made or trying harder to be better people. Lord, we come this morning and we say, <laughs> we, we know how broken we are. We don't come to look down on other people, though sometimes we know we do. And Lord, we ask that you'd forgive us. Lord, we don't come relying on our own goodness. We have very little we can offer you. We just come relying on Jesus. And placing our hope and our faith and our trust in him, the one who died on a cross for us, the one who made things right. And because of that, Father, we know you're not angry with us. You're for us. You're working out your purpose in our lives. Lord, we would want that more than anything. Lord, this morning, as we take communion in a moment, as we worship, as we are prayed with and pray, Lord, may we find new life again through your Spirit in our lives. In the name of Jesus.